0: We are going through our second week of our Advent series this morning. Uh, it's a thrill of hope, hope for a weary world, as many of us are just tired over the, after the last couple of years for what's going on. And last week we saw how God sent a messenger uh, to prepare the way for the Messiah to come into the world. And this week um, we're going to see that that Messiah would also be called a king, But what kind of king would he be? Would he come in strong and raise up a military and conquer everybody so he could just tell everybody what to do? Or would he be a dictator who just kind of bossed everyone around and said, if you don't like it or you disobey me, there's going to be consequences or big trouble? Or would he be selfish and only look after himself and stack up all of these riches and things for only himself. And so that's what we will learn today is what kind of king did God send to rescue us? And we'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, it's page 907 um, in the Pew Bible that's in front of you. You can also follow along in our Brentwood Bible Church app. But we're just going to read a few verses this morning. Um, If you've been in church or you know anything about the Christmas season and what it's all about, this is going to sound very um, familiar to you. So we start in verse 26 of chapter 1, and it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. And then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, How can this be, since I have not had sexual relations with a man? And the angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who who was called childless, for nothing will be impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel left her. And so we're just going to kind of go through and see what we can learn from this and how this shows us what kind of king. But before, um, there's a couple of things I want to cover up front, just some technicalities and little things that might be important to know or for us to cover before we go through. And one is, um, how can we explain or believe that in the virgin birth, that Mary actually had a child in the situation that she was in. And so there's a couple of things, and we're just going to kind of focus on Luke himself this morning. And so the first is just Luke himself. Luke writes this gospel as a historian. And so some writers of his time, especially when they're writing about religious topics, would include some myths and legends and things to kind of boost their story, give it some more Excitement or things that people might have heard of. Um, But Luke writes actually as a historian. So he deals with facts and historical accounts, and that's it. The second is his material that Luke uses. So even though he focuses on the facts and facts alone, that also means he doesn't hesitate to record miracles or sensational events if he is convinced that they really happened. So he doesn't add anything to make it better but he also doesn't leave anything out. And so if he says Jesus was born of a virgin, it's because he believes this to be a historical fact. And the third is who he's writing about, this one who would be the savior, the one who is coming into the world. Um, would If he is such a great figure... Um, What more appropriate way than that his entry into the world would be miraculous? It would be a little sensational. It would be a little hard to believe in how he entered the world. And it's not out of Luke's imagination, but because he is recording history and how things actually happened. Now, the second question some people have usually on this subject is, well, how did this actually happen? Like, as in, what are the mechanics that Mary actually became pregnant um, through the Holy Spirit. And so, I think I'm saying this partly because I think for us as Christians, at least for what we believe, um, this was not a weird God and Mary physical relationship that happened, right? Like some of the mythologies that we re- you read um, from other places where the gods come down and they have children um, with women on earth, this is a different kind of thing. Um, the scripture tells us in verse 35 Um, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So that's usually the the Holy Spirit will come and overshadow you. And so the real question we're answering is, what does overshadow mean? And so the word um, for shadow or overshadow carries the sense of the holy, powerful presence of God. Um, We have hints of this in the Old Testament tabernacle, when the tent was filled with the glory of God, and it said it became like a cloud. It's also the same word that's used in the transfiguration. And so if you remember the transfiguration, Jesus goes up on top of a mountain, he takes three disciples with him, and when they get up on top of the mountain, he is transfigured, meaning he becomes white, almost glowing, shining like the sun. And then a cloud covers or overshadows them on top of the mountain, and a voice says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so, all three accounts, all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use this same word for overshadow when they talk about the transfiguration. And so, when God overshadows Mary, it's a sign of his presence and his action in the world. It's interesting, the connection, that in this ver- these verses, when he overshadows Mary, she's conceiving the Son of God. And in the transfiguration, when they are overshadowed, it is God proclaiming that this is the Son of God. And so, we are connected in all of those things. And so, um, just wanted to get some of those out of the way just because there might be a question people have or people that you run into this season might be like, how could you even believe this shenanigans, right? Well, those are some things you could use to kind of help them understand what's happening. And so now we can move on and answer the question, what kind of king are we talking about? And how does this king give us hope? And the first thing we see is that the king seeks out, <clears throat> seeks out his subjects. We see this in verse 26 and 27 when Gabriel <clears throat> gets sent to Galilee in a town called Nazareth to Mary, who is engaged to Joseph. And so he comes to him. Comes to her. And so last week we had a very similar situation to this. Zechariah goes into the temple, an angel shows up, says, hey, we know you didn't have a son for your whole life or any kids, but you're going to have a son. And then we get the whole, hey, I'm afraid, don't be afraid. He asks the question, that gets the message and all of that. So we see the same thing play out here with a couple of differences. With Zechariah, we have a priest serving in the inner sanctuary of the temple. Now, This is where you would expect to receive a word from God, right? Somebody in the inner sanctuary of the temple, this is actually at the time believed to be the the place on the planet that is most closest to where God is. And so you wouldn't be surprised that an angel shows up there and has a word from God for somebody, right? Who better than a priest in the inner sanctuary to experience that? But here we have Mary, an engaged teenager From Nazareth, a small, insignificant town, right? Think of it as like a one stoplight town. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about this kind of place. It's out in the middle of nowhere. It's not significant. Nobody comes from there. Nobody from there ever does anything worth talking about. This is where God sends the angel. But God sends the angel and the message to her just like he did to Zechariah, in the middle of nowhere is just as inappropriate a place for God to do something than it is to do it from the center of the temple. Right? The king that we are talking about doesn't only do things in his throne room or in his cap- ca- <clears throat> in his castle, or in the temple, or in the sanctuary, he does things everywhere. He goes out to the people, he speaks with them, he interacts with them. This is actually what the whole Christmas story is all about. That God, through Jesus, came to us wherever we are on the earth. He didn't stay in heaven and say good luck. He didn't send him just to the religious people. He didn't use another prophet. He comes for all. And so he was born just like anybody else. Nothing spectacular, nothing fancy, just someone born in a town. So no matter where you are, in your life, whether you're at church or at home or at the store or at work or driving your car, God can still show up. God can still speak to you. There's no special place you have to be to interact with this king because he seeks you out and he speaks to you wherever you are. So this king comes to us. We don't have to go to him. Next we see that the king gives grace to all, and we see this in the, the greeting that Mary gets from the angel. And he says, "Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you." And then he finishes with, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God." And so the the root word for this word favor is actually grace. And so, if we combine these two, the beginning and the end together, it actually says something like, "Greetings, graced woman. You have found grace with God." But why is she considered to have grace with God? Why is she so favored? Why is she receiving this grace? Is it something she has done or who she is? Why did God choose her? Well, to understand that, I want to look at two other instances of this phrase or word being used where it calls someone favored, or it talks about this same word for grace, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And so first, our first connection is actually with Noah in Genesis. And so I'm going to read you this from Genesis um, chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. And you don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. But it says this. It says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. And then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Then verse 8, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. It says, Noah found favor with God. It doesn't tell us, actually, that he was better than anybody else or that was doing anything different than what anybody else was doing. It says, Noah received God's favor. He was chosen, and he was given grace. Then, let's look at the New Testament example. And this, we're going to look at the book of Ephesians. So we actually didn't cover this that long ago in our series on Ephesians, um, and it's in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. And it says, He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for Himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Now, believe it or not, the word for grace that we're looking at is actually the phrase that says lavished on, or whatever is similar to that in your translation. And so what it's saying is, God graced us with his grace. He has given it to us freely, right? Just in the way that he chose Mary. Not because of what, who she was or what she had done or what we have done or who we are, but because of who he is. He chooses us. He gives us grace, Right? God chose Mary. He gave His grace to her, the grace to be the mother of His Son, the Messiah, not because of what she had done, but because of His will. So, too, God can grace you with grace, not because of who you are, not because you come to church every week or watch the live stream every week, not because of anything you've done or anything you haven't done, but because He chooses you. Right, there is hope because any and everyone can receive grace at any time. No one is excluded. We can have hope that God's grace will come into our lives through Jesus. So no matter where you are, no matter where the person you're praying for is, no matter where your coworkers or boss or friends are that you're concerned about, they can receive grace because that's what God does. He gives grace to those we would least expect it, and it is available to all. We also see from this king that the king is the promised ruler. We see this in in the, in the verse that says, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll be a king just like David, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that David... Um, had his flaws, but overall he was a good king. He was described as a man after God's own heart. He loved people well. He tried to do the right thing. He repented when he screwed up, right? And so he did this, and so this king that would come would be similar and from the line of David. And David was also promised that one of his descendants would reign forever, So I'm going to read this. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, and this is going to sound a lot of familiarity between what we read in Luke. You're going to hear some of the same phrases in this, and so they're connecting them together. And so this is what it says. This is the prophet Nathan talking to David. It says, the Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you, and when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And when he does wrong I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed removed it from Saul whom I removed from before you your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Now, like a lot of prophecies that we see in the Old Testament, they have what's called a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And so the near fulfillment in this passage in 2 Samuel 7 is that David's son Solomon would be the one to build the temple. He would actually build the house of God. So that's where we see that part being fulfilled. And he would um, do that, but he would also have some trouble and get off track and be disciplined by God because of what he had done. And so that's where we see that part of it come in. But it also has a far fulfillment of pointing to the future where David's line would be established forever. That someone would rule from his line forever. and So that's where this Messiah comes in. That's where the angel is saying he'll be from the line of David because he's fulfilling this prophecy that came from hundreds of years ago. And so Jesus would be a continuation and fulfillment of God's plan and God's promises throughout history. And we can have hope because this plan isn't just something that God made up as he went. Right? He didn't get to when Jesus was supposed to be born and be like, oh man, these guys have messed up again. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. What are we gonna do about this? I guess we'll just keep making up no, he had this planned out from the beginning. We see hints of this all throughout the Old Testament. And he's connecting the dots together. Right? We had this from hundreds of years, and this is just one of them. There's a whole bunch of these prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus and all of it comes true when Jesus is born. And so we can have hope because God comes through on his promises. He has a plan. He's working it out. We can trust in what he's doing. There's another interesting thing just on in this verse that I just wanted to note because it says Jesus came from the line of David. But if you were read. If you are listening or you see really closely it says she Mary was engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Jesus connection to David doesn't come through Mary. It comes through Joseph. Right? And we talk often, and we've seen it in Ephesians, and I'm pretty sure we're going to see it again when we go back and finish that, this theme of adoption. And I think what God is telling us in this situation with Jesus himself is that this theme of adoption, of being adopted into God's family, he takes very seriously. Right? Because Jesus is essentially adopted into the line of David. And so we as well can be adopted. And I think God is telling us, right, sometimes the way we view adoption is something went wrong or something is broken and somebody needs to be adopted or somebody can't take care of or maybe sometimes doesn't want this child. And So sometimes for us, being adopted can have this negative connotation. But I think God, even in the birth of Jesus, is saying, no, adoption is good and it's my plan. And even Jesus was adopted into this line of David. So when we are adopted as sons and daughters of God to go into his family, it's a good thing, just like Jesus was. So adoption was God's plan. Again, not a oops, not a okay, we have to make this up, but part of his plan from the beginning. The next thing we see is that the king is God's son, right? So this isn't just any son, this isn't just any miraculous birth, but a son and a birth connected to God. And we see this pretty clearly in a couple of verses, um, verse 32, where it says, "'He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High.'" And then in verse 35, it says, "...the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you." So we have the Most High referring to God, and then we have Jesus being referred to as the Son of the Most High, right? The Son is, is from the Father. And in this thinking at this time, um, the Son was thought of basically as a carbon copy of the Father, I just realized this carbon copy reference is not going to be good for much longer. Um, You guys all know what carbon copy is, but like people Jeremy's age and after, they have no idea what a carbon copy is because you just don't do that anymore. So I'm thankful that you guys are with me and you understand carbon copy this morning. Right? So it means Jesus has the same qualities, the same character as the Father. So what we see in God, we also see in Jesus in the king. It's the same thing for us, right? When you look at someone's kids and you say, oh, he looks just like his father, or he acts just like his father. Or sometimes we see what's different, right? He doesn't look like him or he doesn't act like him, those kind of things. But he looks and acts like you. And so what we see is this, as Jesus as the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, is that he would rule just like God would rule. He would be loving just like God is loving. And God's love is sacrificial for us in sending his son and seeking us and reaching out to us and giving us grace. That the rule would be gracious. He would be a benevolent, loving, gracious king who does good things for us and blesses us and gives us more than we deserve instead of just keeping everything for himself. He would be a king that provides, that gives us everything that we need who makes sure that we are taken care of, that we have all of the things that we need to survive and to thrive. But also a king that protects. That when the enemy comes and people try to attack us or damage us or get us off track, that he would protect us from all of those things, whether that's people or ideas or sin in our lives, he would protect us from all of those things. The difference is, Usually when we think about a son, we think, oh, the father is greater, bigger, stronger than the son. Son is sort of a, a lesser version of the father sometimes. That's not how it works here. Jesus is not a lesser version of God that we see walking on earth. He is equal to God. They are the same. So this king who would reign, this son of the most high, is not a lesser version that we see of God is an exact replica, right? Something that we can see all of God in him and through him. He is equal to God as he reigns on earth. And next we see that the king will rule forever. We see this in verse 33. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Right, this connects to the verses we already read from 2 Samuel 7. Right, this is God's promise to David confirmed to Mary. And Mary, as she was, would have understood and connected the dots for these references. The son that the angel was talking about, the son that she would have, would be this Messiah that had been promised so long ago. And this baby, this king, would rule forever. Now, this is a little different than what we are used to, as someone ruling or reigning or being in charge forever. Um, Because for us, about every four years, um, we all get together and we check some boxes and send send some votes in, and we decide who is going to lead us for the next four years so we have this rotating leadership that we're kind of used to and accustomed to, and um, we're worried about who's going to be in charge next, right? And when the election happens, some people are, like, excited about who's going to be in charge for the next four years, and some people are not as excited, and some of us just wish there was somebody we wanted to vote for instead of somebody we had to vote for, right? And so we kind of are in this cycle of leadership changing over and over and over and over again, and everything swings and changes depending on who gets elected. But this king will rule forever. No 4-year, no 8-year term limits, right? He can rule forever for all eternity. And this doesn't just mean consistent, right? It doesn't mean you have to have the same ruler for a long time and so you get used to what they're doing. No, this is not just consistency, but it also means the best Candidate we could ever imagine would be in charge forever. Someone so good that the Republicans and Democrats would both vote for him together, right? That's how good he would be. And he would be in charge forever. And not just here in our country, but in the entire world. A king who is loving and gracious and fair and just and caring and sacrificial. He will be the greatest ruler that the world has ever seen. But if we think about it and what Scripture tells us, this isn't actually something new. Because God tells us in Scripture that He has always ruled. Right? He created the world and he was ruling from the beginning. He is ruling now. Whether we feel like he's ruling all the time or not, he is still in charge. And this is just saying, hey, he has ruled, he is ruling, and he will rule forever. It will not change. It will not be different. He will go on for all eternity. And so we're going to actually going to end today with Mary's response to all of this. Yes, she was visited by an angel and promised to be the mother of the Messiah, the Son of God, by a miraculous birth. But how does she respond? She says in verse 38, See, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Right? I am God's servant. May it go as you have said. And Mary most likely understood that for her, an engaged person, which is basically considered marriage at this point, you were just waiting a matter of time until it became official, to become pregnant, not from the person she was engaged to. She would be disgraced, She would be talked about. She would be judged for breaking her marriage vow to Joseph. She could be divorced. She could be cast out. But she doesn't seem to hesitate. She just says, I am the Lord's servant. All Mary had to do in this moment was to be available to God and to respond when he called. The same thing is true for us. Our job is only to be available to God and to respond when he calls us. Right, we can accomplish great things through God's strength if we only say, use me as you will. I won't worry or question because I don't feel qualified or I don't think I'm able to be used by God or I've done too many things or I'm too old or too young or too many kids or whatever it may be. We just simply say, use me. I am your servant. And that seems to me simple and hard at the same time. Right? It's a, such a simple thing just to say, God, just use me however you want. But it's hard sometimes when he comes calling and says, this is what I want you to do. But if we look at what the last thing the angel said to Mary was, it gives us even more hope. And this is verse 37, and he says, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. A a virgin can have the Messiah, someone from the middle of nowhere who nobody cares about, who nobody would think twice about, can be the center of what changes the history of the earth forever. Because she was willing and available to God. So whatever you might be struggling with or working through or figuring out or trying to overcome in your life, Or even if you're celebrating and you're happy and you're glad about where you are in life, all of those things are possible through what God is doing in your life or what He can do in your life. And so the goal is for me to say and for you to say, may it be to me as you have said, I'm here to serve the King. Will you pray with me this morning? God, we come before you and we thank you for sending Jesus into the world, for sending us this King who was born not in the way that we would expect the King to come. No celebrations, no great circumstances, no big announcements, just born in a seemingly insignificant place. And so this week, as we reflect on that, as we remember that, as we approach Christmas Day at the end of the week. You would help us to remember that you are the king that comes to us. You don't leave us on our own. You don't say good luck. You don't pile up your resources and hold them for yourself, but you give them to us freely. That You give us grace. And so help us to remember that even you sending your son to us is grace. We didn't deserve in our sin and our brokenness and our rebellion, for you to come and rescue us, to live among us, and to, uh, to, to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have life. But you came anyway. And it's as we trust in you, as we believe in you, as we give our lives over to you, that we can experience your grace that comes through King Jesus. So, God, help us in this season as. We feel the the weariness of of just the last two years and it seems like in the next couple of weeks it's going to continue and circle back around again. God, just help us to feel the thrill of hope that even though we're weary, we can rejoice because you are reigning. You are ruling. You are calling us to follow you. So help us to rejoice and to remember the night that you were born that changed everything. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.